MSW Media. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer, what can we do to reform our criminal justice system to reduce police brutality? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I get to Patty, I want to thank you for supporting this episode, with special thanks to our patrons, particularly Michelle Dew, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, obviously what happened to George Floyd was horrific, and it, it was just the tip of the iceberg. But it seems that some good has come of this and that there's been a shift amongst the establishment, even amongst corporate America, in terms of the attitudes towards police brutality, um, kind of in racial injustice and sort of race and how it interfaces with the criminal justice system. And I think we're also seeing so much footage from all over the country in the police response to civilians. And look, we're seeing some great images. You're seeing folks hugging each other and bonding. But we're also seeing this sort of, you know, the group mentality in particular. I know we're watching this image today of the elderly man who was a man who was uh, knocked down started bleeding and the police officers basically like one stop to see if he was okay. And he was told by someone else to keep going. And, and they all did in this, in this really strange uh, sort of like what we always assume of a uh, don't cross the police line. And, and you feel that and I live in a community that has a lot of first responders. And even I feel like, you know, uh, will I be targeted by somebody because I am outspoken about Black Lives Matters and about being a woman of color who is, you know, is really in this moment in history grateful that so many people are coming together, really want, and, and so many people want to listen. Have you noticed that? That that seems to be one of the the most promising things too, is, is people who might otherwise not have taken the time to understand more are, seem to be participating in this process in ways they hadn't previously. I think that's right. It, it, it What I've also seen too is just, the unacceptability of the message that there's nothing to see here and that people who are protesting this issue are somehow unpatriotic. I mean, we saw Drew Brees, the uh, uh, New Orleans Saints quarterback, come out and say, you know, hey, you know, taking a knee is wrong, disrespectful to the flag. Messages that Trump and all of his allies had been pushing for years. And there was an immediate, immediate backlash. He retracted his statements a day later. You're seeing corporate America, you know, all these Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies coming out and saying we need racial 
uh, injustice to be, um, you know, to be systematically reformed. We stand with people who are protesting. Black Lives Matter uh, is becoming more of a mainstream term. Uh, I do. I see the sort of shift that in a totally different context, I saw, you know, maybe a decade or two ago in terms of gay rights, where you know, it was something that was this anathema issue in the 2004 election. It was used by Republicans as a wedge issue to reelect uh, uh, George W. Bush. And then we've had ma- we just had a massive change and a massive movement in that direction in within a decade or two. Yeah, this is a, an incredible moment in our lifetimes, and I think it throughout history of a movement that's taken people uh, to places they might not have otherwise been comfortable with, and that's global. You know, when you see communities that, I mean, even their neighbors, I, I have a neighborhood group that just started, parents uh, who are trying to get together to make sure that we all are allies together. We, I live in a predominantly uh, white neighborhood. Uh, Latinos uh, make up a, a, you know, about 22% of the population. Um, but uh, African-Americans, uh, you know, the black families that live here, maybe 4%. Um, and so there, you know, I, I'm just so thrilled to see so many of my neighbors, but it is a private group. We are trying to shelter ourselves in ways because it's just, it's exhausting to keep having to answer questions and, and, and to stand up for yourself everywhere. And I, I do love that group feeling. I, I you know, we're not going to talk too much about, uh, the, you know, political reaction or the, the mayor's reaction in Chicago. I was in many ways disappointed uh, but that's something for another time as far as how curfew was enforced and raising the bridges and trapping protesters downtown and letting one part one you know part of the story take hold that wasn't I, I think should not have been the focus. Uh, yeah, for sure. And obviously today there's been questions about how the New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, has responded. And that's something we can talk to our guest about. She's from New York City, has a lot of experience there, uh, formerly with the city government. And that's Maya Wiley. Maya is not just an MSNBC legal analyst, which I'm sure is how most of you know her, but she's also a civil rights activist. And she's the former chair of the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board, an independent and impartial police oversight agency. Before she was in that role, she was counsel to the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio. And she's also vice president for social justice at the New School in New York. So now let's bring in Maya Wiley. Welcome back to the podcast, Maya. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Renato. It's great to be with you both. Yeah, obviously, I wish it was on better circumstances. Um, although, uh, you know, it seems to me, Maya, that it that George Floyd's death and or murder, I should say, is there's some good coming from that in terms of increased understanding and attention paid to the issue of of racial inequality and and police brutality and other related issues in our criminal justice system i'm curious how how you view sort of the reaction to his death yeah i think i think you're you're right to say both that it's horrible to have to have this conversation it's um particularly difficult as a new yorker who uh, worked for city government when Officer Pantaleo put Eric Garner in an unauthorized chokehold, and he was the first uh, death for the hashtag, I can't breathe, and and now we have another one. So it feels very personal 
in a way, I think for many New Yorkers and, and I think for the country, given how horrific that video was, my both hope and where I feel a, a possibility is the fact, it's not just that there's a reaction, because we had a reaction, remember, after Michael Brown's uh, shooting in Ferguson, we had, we had a re reaction after Trayvon Martin was killed by a vigilante, George Zimmerman. We, we, although there was not, there was audio in that case, not video. Um, but we've also had video of um, violent incidents with police over the years like in 1992 with Rodney King in Los Angeles. And I think the concern has been that video itself and, and the response of the, of, of the public to those videos, even when they're upset by them, has not always produced change. What is hopeful now, what feels different now, is that the people who are protesting, number one, are very diverse. Um, we here in New York City, but you can see it in video from around the country, Black, Asian, Latino, white, American, I mean, truly multiracial, um, multigenerational. There, there are a lot of young people, obviously, but, you know, I myself have protested um, since Eric Floyd was, was murdered, and I see a lot of people of, of many ages who were out in the protests. And I think that signals something different. And the fact that they're happening night after night, after day, after night, and they are not ceasing solely because there have been charges, because the, the understanding and the public, the public understanding that I think you're referring to is that the public understands there's a systemic problem. So that the call for justice, of course, includes justice for George Floyd, and of course included uh, justice being demonstrated by charging the other officers who were involved, but that the charges themselves are insufficient to shift a system that has resulted in um, what is projected to be one out of every 1,000 black men and boys being shot by the police. So I, I'll stop there, but I think you're right. You know, I, I think you said something important, Maya, which is you talked about the, the need for systematic reform. I think that one thing that frustrates me whenever there is a um, an act of police brutality that's caught on video or a case that draws public attention is we focus very much on an aberration of a specific officer. And it's certainly the case that Obviously, there are a lot of great people in law enforcement. I used to work with many of them when I was a, a federal prosecutor, and we, we can't lump everyone together. But nonetheless, there are you know, practices, there are policies, there are structures, there are laws that work together to make these problems more, far more frequent than they should be, that make these outrages more frequent, that, that disproportionately generate um, these acts, uh, whether it's murders or other types of abuses that are that are that are that are less severe than murder, but nonetheless very serious and that disproportionately impact African-Americans. You know, what what from your perspective are the most important reforms that are necessary? 
Uh, you you said that so well, Renato. Covering covering this, what the system is, uh, you know, because that's a system is we we actually have multiple institutions because there's the police itself, but then there's the prosecutors, there's there's judges, there's the body of laws, there's even how we construct neighborhoods and where and why we see high crime in some and not in others. <laughs> it 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 is true. Let me back up. Because uh, just to give a little bit of a sense of my perspective, you said something really important um, that which 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 should be lifted up. Not all police officers are the same. There are many good police officers. At the same time, the one bad apple narrative—you know, there's there are bad apples. Just one bad apple spoils the bunch. What it ignores is what bad policing does to good cops. So, for instance, good cops stay silent when they see bad because the likelihood of something, some discipline or something changing with what's bad, I have heard police have told me directly, um, may not always feel li likely. Uh, and they have to worry about how they then will be perceived by their own fellow officers for ratting. You know, there is a saying, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's only in the New York City Police Department, all officers espouse this view, but it is a common saying that goes, better to be tried by 12 than carried by six. So you'd rather be, you'd rather be pulled in front of a jury of your peers for excessive force and be dead. That mentality means that even police officers who think and believe they're seeing wrong may feel unable to, to say it because that is a part of the culture, that in order to protect yourself as police, you must be aggressive. We're seeing that in some of these demonstrations, which is really just making the point that demonstrators are trying to make. Uh, I have also seen video of police officers, you know, kind of pulling back their 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 uh, their colleagues who were kind of moving forward towards protesters. So we've I've, I've seen I've seen the good and the bad in some of the videos. I, I say that because the way we change culture in the in police departments, I believe, is that to your point, there's certain laws that must be changed, and one is and critical is the transparency of complaints and the transparency of the discipline around those complaints in the police department. So many police departments um, keep their the complaints and whether or not they have discipline for them in the dark. As we saw with Officer Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, who was the officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck, he had a long history of complaints. Now, um, Minneapolis had reformed that, uh, I think it was 2015, maybe 2016, by making available officer uh, disciplinary data available to the public, but that is highly unusual and a relatively recent reform. But if you don't shine a light on it, uh, it doesn't allow the public to identify for the police department, the police department is not suffi taking sufficiently seriously conduct by its police officers. The other is, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of the 
people who falls in, in on the side of the debate that we need to have independent prosecution of police misconduct cases when they are when they are uh, or should be considered for criminal charges. You know, I, I we, we saw this in Ahmad Arbery's um, killing by a former police officer who had worked closely and worked in as an investigator in the district attorney's office, and the number of district attorneys that the public had to demand in order to get to a point where there was a where there were charges brought in that case where there was also video. Uh, the independence, I think, is important, not because I think, to your point, all prosecutors are biased, but because there is a close symbiotic relationship and an independence of relationship uh, makes the prosecutorial decisions more neutral. Uh, and the other piece is to ban some of the bad behavior and make it more clear what behavior should not be tolerated and, and should be responded to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that you you raise a, a very important point, Maya, about you know who is doing the prosecuting. Certainly, in my city of Chicago, where we've had our own share of of outrages, like Trayvon Martin, for example, obviously a case that generated a lot of nationwide attention. Um, the the feds, my former office, often had to kind of step in and handle the prosecution because there's there is very very much a concern that the state's attorney's office our equivalent of the district attorney is working hand in hand with the police and so the there's almost a kind of an uh, it's not an actual conflict of interest but there is certainly an, a concern that they're not going to be as zealous and they have other considerations when they're prosecuting an officer because they have a relationship with the police department and the police department is their partner in a way that um, there isn't uh, with the feds. And I saw, you know, in my um, in my state, uh, my attorney, uh, attorney general in my state, uh, Kwame Raul, has, has been advocating publicly for state attorney generals to take on that role. I'm, I'm curious what you think of that proposal. Well, I, I you know, I, I haven't looked closely enough at it to have a strong personal opinion. I think what we have seen in the case of the officers who killed George Floyd, it made a huge difference for it to be taken up by the state AG, um, who still has, as he has said publicly, works it w- will work in partnership with the district attorney. I think it is the independence. I think each state can look at what may work best in its state. The independence is is the key part, and for uh, states attorney general. Um, that is that is certainly one possibility. Yeah, I, it's certainly important. I think another piece of this that gets ignored is the role that collective bargaining can have with a police union. I know in Chicago, one thing that frustrated me when I was investigating police officers uh, as a US, when I was a federal prosecutor is that they have when there is an allegation that's made against them or there's been an incident. They have uh, in Chicago, they have um, a contractual right to speak with a union representative before they're interviewed by the state's attorney's office. And of course, if I shot somebody, it's not like I'm going to get some special opportunity to speak with someone. Now, obviously, you have a constitutional right to consult with an attorney, but usually law enforcement's going to be grilling me immediately, trying to get me to talk, trying to get me to confess, trying to get me to say something before. I have a chance to discuss it with counsel. 
Whereas you have police officers who are already very sophisticated players when it comes to the criminal justice system getting an opportunity to to speak with somebody and kind of get their story straight. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, I think you have to consider we have to consider the role that kind of the police union and the police kind of how their how how their rules are uh, as well, because sometimes that can give an advantage uh, to police and make it make them feel more free about doing, as you said, taking the risk of being before 12 jurors rather than, um, you know, you know, some some other choice that they could have made. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and protections that you and I would not get as civilians, to your point. And one of the things I think that protesters are raising vocally and clearly is there can't be two different levels of justice, one for those in blue and one for those for everyone else, uh, and maybe even a third for those who are people of color. That, you know, the equal protection of the laws, that our system of justice should indeed be blind. And those kinds of bargained for protections, and they are designed to make it more difficult to bring either disciplinary action internally or charges externally against police officers in ways that, you know, the average low-income black kid on a corner who's picked up, you know, wouldn't get. Uh, And I think that it is equally important that there is a, a, both the rules of engagement, be fair and appropriate to due process, no question. You know, I believe in the right to counsel. I believe everyone has a right to counsel. But to your point, when you create extra protections and, and, and extra steps that make it much more difficult to hold police officers accountable, that is a serious problem. Yeah, we already have enough trouble obtaining uh, convictions when there is sufficient evidence because grand jurors, much less jurors, uh, uh, you know, are often reluctant uh, to decide that uh, police officers are guilty or even if there's that there's probable cause. They get they tend to give officers the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and that's actually you've just named another state level reform. You don't want. So- allow prosecutors to um, decide to bring charges based on information, don't require them to go to the grand jury, and then have the prosecutors be making, be independent from the prosecutors who work directly with the police. Uh, there, There is a constitutional guarantee to being charged by a grand jury, but I think potentially you could give defendants an incentive, police defendants, you know, create a, a law that gives them a incentive to agree to an information. And I think you could also consider jury instructions, for example, that would tell instruct the jury that they should not treat the defendant differently based upon their their uh, former position as a police officer or their current position as a police officer. You also could consider potentially rules of evidence that would allow the prosecutors to present evidence to give the jury context to help ensure that they're not going to give um, undue weight to that to that current or former status as a police officer. You know, uh, Patty, do we have any questions from our listeners? I know that you, we have a number of them, I, and I want to go to those. 
Absolutely. And I, and I do want to say that the listener, one listener had a question so that they never leave the room when you're uh, speaking on, on television because you have so much compassion and insight uh, that they're often spellbound. <laughs> Just want to make sure you know that. I know that you, you've got a lot, uh, you know, a lot of uh, conversations that you've been having, but one listener wants to know if you could discuss some laws that disproportionately affect black Americans. Well, there's, so, you know, I think, you know, there's some obvious ones, for example, you know, how um, more related directly to sentence, sentencing in particular, which was that you would charge, uh, you could get a much higher sentence for, say, distributing crack cocaine than powder cocaine, although pharmacologically they're the same. Uh, and it, it was more about societal perception. Uh, as a drug of choice in low-income communities of color uh, and a perception that inherently it created more violence than powder cocaine. What we had was over-policing of low-income communities of color, but also much higher sentences uh, for the offenses. And so one of the reforms was we shouldn't be treating them differently. So it, it, the other is, you know, and marijuana obviously has been a, a big discussion in the country nationally because we know so many nonviolent offenders who disproportionately people of color, uh, both prosecuted and imprisoned for marijuana possession. And that's why one of the reforms has been to say we should not be prioritizing, either decriminalize it, meaning it's not, it's still a controlled substance, but we're not going to police it that way. You know, we're not going to use our resources that way. Um, one of the things that district attorneys who are ref who have been one election for reform to, in, as criminal justice reformers, like Ken Thompson, who unfortunately passed away tragically due to cancer um, here in Brooklyn, was one of those reformers who just said to the police department, "Don't don't bring me these low level, small amount of possession cases of marijuana. I'm not going to prosecute them." Uh, and his reasoning was because it is all these nonviolent people who are otherwise lawful, who were essentially now going to have a felony record, have trouble getting a job and employment, um, in some instances not be able to get certain types of licenses, all for something that, you know, kids who in white suburbs could do without any of those consequences simply by virtue of their wealth or, or their community. So it's, it's a lot of it has to do with our perception of crime, um, who is perpetrating it, and whether or not we think it's a danger to society. That's where we really have to be concerned about how people of color in general, black people in, in particular, are being treated by the criminal justice system. Yeah, I have to say, Maya, um, you know, sentencing, you, you raise the issue of sentencing. I think it's so important people understand how um, there there are really, um, in, my, in my mind, bizarre decisions that have been made at the federal level about sentencing for different types of offenses that have a pretty significant impact. You know, for example, drug cases have often have very high mandatory minimum sentences. And gun cases can have – well, often not, depending on the case. And there's a lot of – I don't want to paint with a, a, a broad brush, but it is possible that you could be somebody engaged in you know, gun trafficking unless you're, you're 
you know, there there's drugs involved or priors or things like that, other types of enhancements, you could often get a lower sentence for selling guns than you would get for selling a, a large quantity of, of narcotics. And I think for a lot of people right now, you know, f illegal firearms or surreptitious sale of firearms is, you know, obviously a more imminent threat and something that is endangering people. And similarly, there are white collar crimes that can devastate people. I prosecuted white collar crimes where people lost their life savings to fraudsters. And those people were getting, you know, very small fractions of the sentences that people were getting for distributing narcotics. And so as you point out, who is committing the crime can sometimes influence the sentencing choices that are written into our statutes. Yeah. And prosecutorial discretion, you know, we don't talk as much about that. But unfortunately, it, part of the sentencing story is prosecutors deciding what the charges will be and how many of them, how many counts. And, 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 and so prosecutors, there, there is research that shows implicit bias uh, amongst prosecutor, prosecutorial decisions in terms of, say, ch charging an assault as a, as a misdemeanor versus a felony. And if you're white, you're more likely to be charged uh, as a, a misdemeanor assault versus a felony assault. That's the kind of thing that we talk less about and should talk more about when we talk about criminal justice reform and sentencing, because those things obviously have significant impact on people in terms of in terms of what sentences they face. Yeah, that is a very, very important point, Maya. And I will just, you know, just amplify that by saying that, you know, in in my experience, it really can show how elections matter. You know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I began uh, working in the George, when it was under George W. Bush administration, and then the bulk of my time was during President Obama's administration. And after his election, uh, uh, Eric Holder, the attorney general, promulgated guidance and, and a new policy in the Justice Department saying that we weren't going to seek mandatory minimum penalties in every drug case. We were going to start looking at each case and determine, is this somebody that should have that mandatory minimum? Is this somebody who's like a gang leader or involved in violence? Or are they somebody who we would be better off not incarcerating for that long? And that resulted in a very significant review of cases and a, and a, 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 a use of prosecutorial discretion to, you know, not to seek, you know, this, you know, as long of a sentence for very substantial categories of defendants. And that was under, you know, just caused by a change in the White House and a change in attorney general. And that's been reversed in the Trump administration. And it's an example, really, of how elections matter and why the election in November matters for this specific issue of criminal justice reform and how uh, the law enforcement system impacts uh, different, uh, gr you know, different groups. Really important, and and thank you for that example. Well, yeah, Maya, I I know a lot of people. You're you're brought in a lot of different directions, so I don't want to keep you too long. But I I do think a lot of people are listening to this, and are frustrated and want to know what they can do. Well, what what can what can people who are listening to this do? What how should they change their behavior, their thoughts? Who should they support? What should they what can they do to make a difference on this issue? 
you know, one of the things that we're seeing right now is exactly what people should be doing, which is making clear that the American public wants reform. That That's a powerful starting point. The peaceful protest day in, day out has made clear, I think, both to leaders of police departments, but also elected leaders, that something has to be done differently. But then there's the what's the something, and we've obviously talked about that, and it, it, it shifts from federal level to state to local what, what people can do. One is writing your um, elected representatives in Congress and demanding that Representative Hakeem Jeffries' uh, federal ban on chokeholds is passed, is adopted into law, and the anti-lynching bill um, that you know is being held up in the Senate. Those are reforms that are obvious, and particularly in the, given the videos that we've seen, and pushing for those federal level changes uh, is important. The other, though, it really is at the state and local level, and and around letting leaders know that residents want the, the reforms. So whether that's police transparency, you know, here in New York State, there's a state law that courts have interpreted to protect the privacy of police disciplinary matters. So the kind of transparency we see in Minneapolis around Officer Chauvin's um, disciplinary history, we can't see in New York uh, unless the officer, him or herself, or someone else engaged in the misconduct who has it makes it public. So, you know, in New York State, that's an obvious one for people to support. There's also, you know, I think really getting involved at the community level in what's happening with policing and law enforcement at the community level. You know, I just saw an example uh, in my a community my brother is in, and he sent it to me because it was such a great one. He said, the the social and civic network of the community had traditionally been very divided, meaning there was one kind of chat room for the white folks in the community and another <laughs> chat room, wow. you know, and the and blacks and Latinos talk separately. And that that has shifted now because of George Floyd and because of demonstrations and because those conversations are now coming together and the civic activity of those different groups are now becoming one around what their own police precinct is doing and and how they engage with their own police precinct that's a powerful shift and there that can happen in any community so i i think there's so many ways it's hard to list them all but we've talked about many of them just being an engaged an engaged person an engaged citizen who participates in asking for the demands and changes um that that we've already heard protesters and thought leaders offer up Absolutely. You make so many good points, Maya. I will say that people often don't focus enough on these state and local elections that really impact our lives and you can make a big difference in. You know, there are a lot of different issues out there and there's a lot of different elections. But when you're it's not only your state attorney general, but your local district attorney potentially is up for an election. If you if you have elected district attorneys in your state, um, you know, local police chiefs or sheriffs. These are opportunities for you in those elections to make this an important issue to you, making sure that they understand in this in that election that these issues matter to you and that you want reform. Well, I will say, Maya, it has been an absolute pleasure. I, I've I always learn from you, and it has just it's been fantastic to have you on uh, the podcast again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be with you, and be safe and well.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 